the Trump indictment was time to distract you from a whole lot of other things going on at the same time. We list them chapter and verse on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and Deep State and lets you in the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid or maybe even too distracted to talk about. This is episode 368 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Sunday, April 9th, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, and August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of the former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports, with my friend Donnie Copeland, which drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. Now, this is Resurrection Weekend, as I'm doing this show. So happy Resurrection Weekend. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is more important than anything else that I ever talk about. All right, on with the show. I watched the Fox News Channel for hours on Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. They had wall-to-wall coverage of President Trump going to a New York City courtroom for his indictment. It was all they talked about all day long. I started watching before noon Central, and I was still watching when the 5 program came on at 4 p.m. Central. They didn't run one commercial for hours. It was nonstop talk about the Trump indictment. And I don't blame them. Indicting a president of the United States is unprecedented. Since our first president, George Washington, took office almost 234 years ago, such a thing has never been done. And I did an episode shortly thereafter entitled, The Charges Against Trump Will Be Dropped, Here's Why in which I attempted to explain what the whole thing was all about. But now, I believe it is my duty to tell you the other important stories that most Americans never heard about because the Trump indictment crowded out all the other things that were going on at the same time for days. They announced days before he actually went to New York City, yep, we're going to indict him. And that's all anybody talked about for quite some time. Now, the Federalist has an article called Seven Serious News Stories Media Choked Out with Trump Indictment Buzz. And I had planned on leading with that. 
And I will share that with you in just a moment. But I just came across something that is amazing, which we have to share before the Federalist story. And then we have a whole lot more very important stories beyond what the Federalist is talking about. But first, I have a statement from a member of Congress that you have probably never heard of that is so obvious but so profound, it's a wonder no one that I know of has ever said this out loud before. His name is Clay Higgins, and he is a U.S. representative from southwest Louisiana. And here he goes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank the panelists for being here today. Mr. Chairman, today's hearing is to discuss our oversight of crime issues in the nation's capital. Before I get to my questions, I'd like to address something that seems to be a repeated talking point of my Democrat colleagues now um, regarding gun violence and gun violence being the number one cause of death of children in America today. You'll hear that a lot. Let me correct both. There's no such thing as gun violence. Preach, brother. There's only human violence. It's intellectually unsound to state otherwise. And the number one cause of death for children in America remains abortion. Truth hurts. The truth hurts. But Clay Higgins is not backing down from the truth. Here's more. CDC numbers, 620,327 legally induced abortions in America in 2020. In that same year, tragically, 4,357 children died from firearm accidental discharge, suicide, and homicides. And my heart goes out to those families. I lost my first daughter in 1990. Not sure how I survived, really. And over the course of my life, I've come to understand that part of me did not survive. Indeed, part of me died with my daughter that day. And I don't appreciate my Democrat colleagues constantly lying to the American people, referring to gun violence as if it's not driven by human violence, and ignoring the fact that America has allowed millions upon millions of children to be killed in the womb. Oh, my goodness. I'm not used to most politicians being that honest. That's deep. And as I'm sitting here on Sunday night, April 9th, that happened 11 days ago, and I'll bet you haven't heard it anywhere. 
and we're just getting started. Here's more from Clay Higgins, U.S. Representative for Southwest Louisiana. Let's turn to crime. Oh, before I get to crime, D.C. statehood. Democrats had majority control up until a couple of months ago. The House is sent in the White House. D.C. statehood does indeed have constitutional barriers. Overcome that, want to create the 51st state, knock yourself out. You had majority control, it didn't happen because you, you, there are indeed significant constitutional barriers. That's a, that's a hearing for another day. We've had many. Let's turn to crime, shall we? Mr. Pemberton, thank you for your service, my thin blue line brother. Considering the D.C. Chief of Police Robert Conte's testimony on February 23rd, 2023, stating that the D.C. Metro Police Department is experiencing record low number of officers and recruitment is incredibly difficult, how might the D.C. Council's Comprehensive Policing and Justice Reform Amendment Act of 2022, that provision which permits activists and anti-police groups to search for officers' past complaints. How might that affect your recruitment and retention of police officers in D.C. Metro Police Department, sir? Yeah, well, thank you. So, first of all, the bill has 26 subtitles in it, and, and all of them are completely detrimental to uh, retain, keeping and retaining and, and hiring new candidates. You're, you're asking specifically about Subtitle X. Uh, subtitle X actually creates a disciplinary database in which every officer's disciplinary history would be posted publicly. It would be hosted uh, by the Office of Police Complaints. So that America understands this is a complaint, not a conviction or a suspension, et cetera. We're talking about all complaints being accessible for public. That, that's how I understand it. Additionally, it also creates a carve-out to FOIA exemptions, which allows any citizen to FOIA an officer's personnel record. Uh, and the only requirements to for redaction would be their address, date of birth, and social security number. Um, you know, we have concerns about undercover officers and, and officers, uh, their other sensitive personal information that could end up in the hands. That would have quite a chilling effect on effective policing, may I say, as a former police officer. Let me just close by saying... To you gentlemen from the D.C. Council, it's going to get worse because the word on the street, it's not uncommon for criminals to, to leave their, their base of operations, their city, for a period of time when the heat is on. And the word's on the street that D.C. is a good destination because prosecution is virtually zero and crime is rampant. It's what you've created here in this liberal stronghold. It's going to get worse. Mr. Chairman, I yield. I mean, it only stands to reason. You hear it all the time in large cities, right? That when the local authorities do not take crime seriously, they get more of it, right? It's going to get worse. Uh, you, you got to get out, you got to get out of blue cities, in my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. All right, let's go to the great uh, Professor Margot Cleveland over the Federalist.com. 
article entitled Seven Serious News Stories Media Choked Out with Trump Indictment Buzz, and then we'll get to a whole lot more stories that I've spent the last few days collecting to share with you. She says, Thursday's leak, talking about Thursday a week ago, proclaiming a Manhattan grand jury had charged former President Donald Trump in a 30-something count criminal indictment preempted nearly a week of important stories. Here are some of the most important underreported stories from the last five days. And she dropped this on Tuesday, April 4th, the day that President Trump went to New York. Number one, House weaponization hearing. On Thursday, the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government held a hearing for testimony related to Missouri versus Biden. In that case... Missouri, Louisiana, and others sued the Biden administration and numerous individual defendants for violating the First Amendment through what the plaintiffs called a vast censorship enterprise. At last week's hearing, Senator Eric Schmidt, Republican, Missouri, Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, and Louisiana Special Assistant Attorney General D. John Sauer testified in detail about that censorship enterprise, providing highlights of evidence uncovered so far in the lawsuit, while the Twitter files, earlier testimony of Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, and previous filings in Missouri versus Biden revealed extensive information about the public-private censorship complex. This testimony provided the House committee with even more troubling information. Number two, Chinese spy balloon. The Chinese spy balloon that floated unmolested across America in February gathered intelligence from several sensitive American military sites despite the Biden administration's efforts to block it from doing so. Now, NBC News reported that. On Monday, April 3rd. Did you hear about that? The revelations based on two current senior U.S. officials and one former senior administration official appear to contradict the Biden administration's earlier claim that the Chinese spy balloon had, quote, limited additive value for intelligence collection by the Chinese government, unquote. Wait, surely you don't. You don't suggest the Biden administration might be lying about something, do you? Well, my stars and goddess, great garden peas, well, I never. Number three, border crisis goes global. A leaked document from the Customs and Border Protection reveals the Biden administration anticipates further increases in Chinese nationals illegally crossing into the United States from Mexico, as the Daily Caller reported. Between October 2022 and February 2023, Border Patrol agents encountered more than 4,200 illegal migrants from China compared to roughly 1,900 in all of fiscal year 2022 according to Customs and Border Protection data. 
Number four, OPEC oil cuts. The OPEC Saudi-led oil cartel's decision last Sunday to cut oil production quickly bumped oil prices up about $5 per barrel. With inflation already high, the increase in energy prices is yet another blow to America's beleaguered middle class. But the story should reverberate all the way to the Oval Office, given that Biden's anti-oil policies and foreign policy missteps gave OPEC power to push the price of oil higher. Number five, dumping the U.S. dollar. Now, that ought to be kind of a big story, I would think. The Ministry of External Affairs in the country of India announced Saturday a week ago a move away from the U.S. dollar, with the country agreeing with Malaysia to create what they call a special rupee Vastro account. Now, that would allow the settlement of international trade in Indian rupees. The move away from the U.S. dollar reportedly came to, quote, safeguard Indian trade from the impact of the Ukraine crisis, unquote. Now, Wednesday of last week also saw China and Brazil complete an agreement to ditch the U.S. dollar to instead deal directly with their own currencies, exchanging yuan for rays or vice versa. In other words, the Chinese money for the Brazilian money, rather than first converting their currencies to the U.S. dollar. That is a report from Fox Business Network. I'm going to tell you something. When um, you run into family members who are like young people who don't pay any attention to politics whatsoever, don't have any idea what's going on in politics, and they start asking you about the dollar, uh, that's kind of a big story. Number six, Russia's arrest of American journalist. Russia's arrest of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich also deserves more attention, first because his detention, the first of an American journalist since the end of the Cold War, represents a new heightening of tensions between the United States and Russia. Gershkovich's detention by Russia shortly after our country arrested Russian national and accused spy Sergei Vladimirov. Vlad, okay, let me try it again. Sergei Vladimirovich Cherkasov also serves as a reminder of the weak deal the Biden administration cut with Vladimir Putin when it released Russian arms dealer Viktor Bout in exchange for American basketball player Brittany Griner. And last but not least, number seven, murder of Russian blogger. The murder of Vladlin Tatarsky last Sunday evening, a Russian military blogger, at a cafe in St. Petersburg, Russia, is another story given short shrift because of the Trump indictment. While the Russians are blaming Ukraine for Tatarsky's murder, a Ukrainian presidential advisor called the bombing an internal political fight, claiming Tatarsky was killed because he had criticized aspects of the Russian military operations in Ukraine. 
These competing narratives aptly demonstrate the danger posed by the government's move to brand news disinformation or misinformation when our leaders deem it necessary to further some perceived American interest. If the government and big tech censors lie about COVID to prevent so-called vaccine hesitancy, why wouldn't they also lie about who's responsible for a murder to ensure continued support of Ukraine? In the days, weeks, and months ahead, the Get Trump Circus will continue to dominate the news. Let's just hope that by the time Democrats call it quits, we still have a country left. That is the great Professor Margot Cleveland over the Federalist from Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Article entitled, Seven Serious News Stories, Media Choked Out with Trump Indictment Buzz. But we have not even begun to scratch the surface. More coming up straight ahead. Okay, listen, if you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to online, and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online. If you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental U.S., redriverauto.com. You'll be glad you did. Now, I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? Well, the Arkansas Observical Center might be able to help you even if you're not in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas bone to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and bad migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away, and they've never come back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, even migraines. Do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. 
Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside Central Arkansas, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You, and I sure hope you can. As you probably know, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. And he's done it again, introducing MyPillow 2.0. MyPillow 2.0 has a brand new temperature regulating technology that keeps you comfortable throughout the night. MyPillow 2.0's new fabric dissipates heat and humidity to create a cooling sensation to maintain a cooler surface temperature. This new fabric technology helps regulate your body temperature through the night by creating a lower surface temperature for a more restful night's sleep. You know, your core body temperature plays a big role in how well you sleep. MyPillow 2.0 was developed to provide a cool surface. It's engineered for comfort. MyPillow 2.0 is available in four loft levels, machine washable and dryable, and there's a 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. As a special introductory offer for my listeners, when you buy your new MyPillow 2.0, you get a second one free just by using promo code DWS. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great, they feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams sheets. Buy a set of Giza sheets, get one free. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. Buy a set of Giza sheets and get one free just by using promo code DWS. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles like plush, waffle, or gossamer. Get huge discounts on blankets, duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Use that promo code DWS and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding, including MyPillow 2.0 and Giza Dream sheets. Buy one, get one free. Now, I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. Right now, save on My Slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins. Close-out sale priced at just $25 by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals for just $19.98. What makes My Slippers different is Mike's exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any of the slippers. My slippers' patented layers make them ultra-comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. Wear them anytime, anywhere. Just use promo code DWS. Now remember, that promo code does not stand for washed-up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, no, no. DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com. Quantities are extremely Limited at these amazing prices. So please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right, let's get back to it. A lot of stuff that you probably missed because the Trump indictment was front and center for pretty much all of us. I don't know if you heard this. We have... Victims of the vaccine 
in their own words. A little two-minute comp- compilation. Let me just share this with you. I got the COVID vaccine because I'm vulnerable and my doctor told me to. I got the vaccine to do the right thing. I got the vaccine to make sure that my dad wouldn't get sick. I got the COVID vaccine because my husband kept getting exposed to COVID at work. I got the vaccine to protect my health. I got the vaccine to protect my friends, my family, and my patients. I received the vaccine to help protect my patients. I got the vaccine to be able to travel. I got the vaccine to protect my dad and my husband. I got my vaccine because I wanted to help protect people, and I wanted life to go back to normal. But now I'm injured. And then after I was sick, I was told I don't know what to do. My doctors. My physician told me the vaccine couldn't do this to me and that I was healthy. My doctor said the second jab could kill me, but he later tried to blame something else. My doctor said that my symptoms could not have come from the vaccine. My doctor doesn't know what to do. My doctor said it's kind of like we're all guinea pigs because this is all so new. We don't really know how to deal with these reactions that we're seeing. I've been told not to share my story because it scares people. I have been told that I should have known better than to get the vaccine, or I told you not to get the vaccine. My friends tell me I got mine, and I'm just fine. I've had many people tell me that my injury is not from the vaccine. My family told me that I was just stressed and anxious. I had a friend tell me, well, I guess you're just one of the unlucky ones because I was fine. Someone close to me told me that I should be silent for the greater good. I have been bullied. I've had death threats. I've been made fun of. I have been injured now for 10 months. Five months. For six months. 11 months. 11 months. 11 months. 11 months. 12 months. 13 months. Nearly four months now. For seven months. For 12 months. 13 months. I've now been injured for 13 months. No one knows how to help us. No one wants to believe You know they're going to try to shut these people up. You know they will move heaven and earth to try to shut these people up and all the other people. No, let me just let me just take you back to Mar Hamlin. The guy who basically dropped dead on a football field a few months ago. Monday night football. You had grown men with their faces in towels, openly sobbing because he was dead. Did CPR on him for nine minutes, and they had to defibrillate him. Once on the field, and his uncle said a couple of days later, again, when he got to the hospital, so all the medical experts... It came out of the woodwork that very same night. Said, "Well, it's it's, it's called commotio cortis. Yeah, it's when you get hit kind of hard in the chest." Lion, lion. You don't get commotio cortis and then have to be defibrillated again when you get to the hospital. There's too much money involved. Way too much money involved. So fast forward. By the grace of God, DeMar Hamlin, Buffalo Bills, still alive. 
Michael Strahan interviews him before the Super Bowl and says, so what did the doctors tell you? 13 seconds of silence. And then Hamlet says, yeah, we're not going to talk about that today. Wonder why. Wonder why. One of two reasons. I don't know which it is. Either he's already been paid off, paid for his silence, or he's got real good attorneys, and they're like, yeah, don't touch that yet. Wait until we sue him. And then we can talk about it. And I don't know which it is. All right. Um, I have talked on another episode about how dangerous the Restrict Act is, but we need to do an update on that. A lot has come out since then. And you didn't hear about it because all anybody was talking about was a Trump indictment. The first voice you're going to hear is that of David Sachs, S-A-C-K-S. You probably never heard of him. He is the general partner of Kraft Ventures, a venture capital fund he co-founded in 2017. Before that, he was the founding COO and product leader of PayPal and founder and CEO of Yammer. So he's a real guy. And he's warning about the Restrict Act, which the folk in D.C. say is just the TikTok ban. No, 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 no. It's not just the TikTok ban. Check it out. I think this is the biggest bait and switch Mm -hmm. that Washington, the central government, has ever tried to pull on us. Everybody thinks that they're just trying to ban TikTok from operating in the U.S. And if that's all they did, then I think the bill would be supported by most Americans. But that's not what they're doing. They're not restricting TikTok. They're restricting us. That's not the goal here. Yeah. What a bait switch. It's a huge bait and switch. And so just so you know, what the act provides is that a U.S. citizen using a VPN to access TikTok could theoretically be subjected to a maximum penalty of one million in fines or 20 years in prison or both. Now, you know, they'll say, you know, Mark Warner, the sponsor of the legislation will swear up and down. That's not the intent. But the problem is that the language of the bill is so vague that some clever prosecutor may want to pursue this theory one day. And that needs to be stopped. Also, there's another problem with the bill, which is you think this is just about TikTok. It's not. What they do is it says here, I guess they don't want to mention TikTok by name. So they're trying to create a category of threatening application. But because it is a category, it's very, very broad. So the bill states that it covers any transaction, transaction, not just an app, in which an entity described in subparagraph B has any interest. And then entities described in subparagraph B are, quote, a foreign adversary, an entity subject to the jurisdiction of or organized under the laws of a foreign adversary, an entity owned, directed, or controlled by either of these. And then it gives the executive branch the power to name a foreign adversary, any foreign government regime that one of the cabinet secretaries defines without any vote of Congress. So this is giving sweeping powers to the executive branch to declare, 
you know, foreign companies to be enemies. It feels like the plot of the uh, prequels in Star Wars. Well, <laughs> Emergency like powers, said, here we go. <laughs> we, you know, we criticize uh, China for having a great firewall. What do you think this is? Yeah, I mean, this, this should obviously have nothing to do with the American consumer and everything to do with a foreign adversary collecting data of Americans at scale. This, this could be written in a much simpler way. Yeah, you know what it should be? be? It should be one sentence, which is that app stores are uh, prohibited from allowing TikTok to be an app in their store. That's what they do in India. That's it. Yeah. Case closed. Yeah. Game over. I think India is doing do. okay, right? They, they block like 100 Chinese apps, and I think their society is still functioning. So, you know, all due respect to AOC, you know, like the idea that 150 Americans, million Americans are going to suffer because they can't be tracked by the CCP is kind of nuts. This is going to give sweeping powers to the security state to surveil us, to prosecute us, to limit our internet usage. This is basically the biggest power grab and bait and switch they've ever tried to pull on us. And again, if they really were concerned about TikTok, it's one sentence. Yeah, we were done. Uh, By the way, a big hat tip to Kanakoa the Great for putting together this compilation of videos warning about the Restrict Act. Okay, do you get that? Washington, D.C. ploy to seize power and a bait and switch, and American citizens using VPNs could potentially face penalties of up to $1 million in fines and 20 years in prison. But it gets worse. So, uh, David Freeberg, let me... um, I mean, I want to share with you what he's got to say, but I probably ought to tell you who he is first. Since he's got about 200,000 followers on Twitter, looks like he is the CEO of something called TPB. TPB. And you go to the website, and it's a huge deal. It stands for the Production Board. It's a venture foundry and investment holding company working to solve what they call the most fundamental problems on earth by reimagining global global systems of production across food, agriculture, biomanufacturing, human health, and the broader life sciences. So they got a pretty broad group of stuff they're looking at, okay? So here is David Friedberg talking about the Restrict Act. Look, I think this is a real threat to the open Internet. I'm really concerned about the language that's been used that basically speaks to protecting the safety and security of the American people by actively monitoring network traffic and making decisions about what network traffic is and isn't allowed to be transmitted across the open Internet. It's the first time that I think in the United States we are seeing like a real threat and a real set of behaviors from our government that looks and feels a lot like what goes on in China and elsewhere, where they operate with a closed Internet, an Internet that's uh, controlled, monitored, observed, tracked, and, and gates are decided by some set of administrators on what is and isn't appropriate. And the language is always the same. It's for safety and security of the people. The ent- entire purpose of the Internet is that it did not have bounds, that it did not have governments that it did not have controls, that it did not have 
systems that are politically and economically influenced, that the architecture of the internet was and always would be open. The protocols are open. The transmission of data on that network would be open. And as a result, all people around the world would have access to information of their choosing. And it allowed ultimate freedom of choice. You know, this, this kind of is the first of what I'm concerned creates a precedent that ultimately leads to a very slippery slope. Saying that TikTok cannot make money in the U.S. by charging advertisers or managing commerce flows is one thing. That's where the government can and should and could, if they chose to, have a role. But I think going in and, and observing, tracking internet traffic and making decisions about what is and isn't appropriate for people, I think, is one of the things that we all should be most concerned about what's going on right now. There is no end in sight to this if you allow this to happen uh, in the first time. You know, VPNs, uh, virtual private networks, allow you to anonymously access internet traffic and, and, and access internet traffic via remote destinations so, so that the ultimate consumption of content that you're using can't be tracked and monitored by local agencies or ISPs. And I think that saying that that can now be restricted takes away all ability to have true privacy and all rights uh, to privacy on the open internet. So I'd love to talk about this more. Unfortunately, I got to run. Um, but right, great this you. is a super threat to me. And I, I, I think this is something we should be super, super concerned about and that the entire community of technology, internet, and anyone that wants to have you know freedom of choice steps up and says, this is totally uh, inappropriate and overrated. Okay. So that's David Freeberg. Next, Jordan Schachtel over to Substack, dossier.substack.com says the Restrict Act, or the TikTok ban, is a digital Patriot Act and a Trojan horse for censorship and surveillance. He says, this bill is no mere TikTok ban. It is a mechanism for a massive, sweeping surveillance and censorship overhaul. The incredibly broad language includes the ability to enforce any mitigation measure to address any risk to national security. Next, Jesse Waters, the guy that comes on early evenings on Fox News, right before Tucker Carlson. He asked Senator Lindsey Graham why he is co-sponsoring the Restrict Act, and Graham says he doesn't support it. And then Jesse Waters torches him. So I bet Lindsey Graham never comes back on his show. It went something like this. We don't like TikTok. We don't want TikTok because the Chinese use it to spy on us and rewire our brains. But we don't want the government spying on us either. Did the United States Senate just say we're going to protect you from China by spying on you? Let's try to get some answers out of the Senator Lindsey Graham who supports this and is here now. you got to be kidding me, Senator. Did you read this? Yeah, I don't think I support the Restrict Act. <laughs> you don't support this because you were named as one of the supporters, because this is garbage. Uh, is this the one with John? There's two bills out there. One allows a review of businesses that, that are connected to China, give the Secretary the ability to protect our data. Uh, is that the Restrict Act? <laughs> We got S-686 right here, March 7th, 
Mm-hmm. And we got a bunch of Republicans supporting it because this thing is crazy town. You don't want yeah. the government looking into your private phone. No, I don't. If and they, they have can't. a hunch you're colluding with the <laughs> Russians, we remember how yeah, that turned that's out. That's right. Yeah, no. Well, the Constitution trumps a statute. So let me come back and, uh, you know, give you a better explanation. Here's the problem as I see it. Uh, China is the parent company of TikTok, and my nieces like TikTok. I don't mind them using TikTok. I just don't want the Chinese government to seize all their data and manipulate the information Americans seize uh, for political purposes. China is helping drug cartels in Mexico. China is not a friend. The Chinese espionage is an all-time high against American business interests. So I want to push back against China, but within a constitutional framework. You're right about that. So, uh you made these allegations, and I'll come answer better next time. Right, well, I mean, because on Congress.gov, you're listed as one of the co-sponsors of this thing. Maybe it's like Fetterman when your chief of staff <laughs> does be. all your work for Could you. Be. But, Senator, you got to go back and talk to these other senators about this. Yeah. This thing is nuts, and yeah. it's going to get abused like it always does. So we got to yeah. clean this up. Can we clean this up? Well, yeah, I mean, number one, yeah, I owe you a better explanation I'm giving you. Uh, John Thune's got a bill to make sure the Secretary of Commerce can deal with this, not just TikTok, but the general idea that China, we're under attack by China. And John Thune is the primary Republican sponsor of this bill. Warner, the primary Democrat sponsor. Update. Lindsey Graham's spokesperson later told Politico that the senator still supports the bill. Now, I know for all my listeners of South Carolina, you may be shocked that one of your U.S. senators would attempt to deceive you but that's what he just did, you know? And I go back to what Tucker Carlson said a while back about Lindsey Graham. And he said, you know, he comes on other TV cable news shows. But he won't come on ours because we'll hold him accountable. Okay, well, Jesse Waters just held him accountable. And I bet you he's not going to come back on that one either. I'll never forget the time Tucker was talking about how Lindsey goes on other shows, but not his, right at the end of his show. And he was about to go on Sean Hannity's show. And now the great Sean Hannity. And Hannity's like, oh, sorry, Tucker, I wasn't listening. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you weren't. It was kind of icy. It was kind of icy there for a minute. Now, I will say this. We do have coming up what is called the most dangerous 
international treaty ever proposed. And I had somebody ask me about this recently. So I'm thinking it's possible that some of the people within the sound of my voice may have heard about this already. But I think most people listening to the Doc Washburn show probably have not heard about it. So that's coming up in a few minutes. So you don't want to go anywhere. Look, uh, you may have heard AT&T recently lost billions of dollars on Wall Street after their satellite outfit, DirecTV, decided to delete Newsmax. So if you want to delete AT&T or any of the other big liberal cell phone carriers, i got the perfect solution for you. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. And Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veterans and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving money with Patriot Mobile. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Why not just do what I did? Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. They're very helpful. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. And with the dollar swiftly disappearing as the world's reserve currency, you might want to think about this. Are you aware of the benefits of investing in precious metals? we got profound benefits. How about number one? Investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. That's what the dollar used to be, right? A store of value means precious metals are an asset, commodity, or currency that maintain their value without depreciating over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, Precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. So we're honored to join forces with Beverly Hills Precious Metals and its owner, Andrew Sorcini. Andrew's been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Andrew Sorcini and his team at Beverly Hills Precious Metals know the gold and silver business inside and out. After many years in the markets and collecting precious metals privately, 
Andrew opened Beverly Hills Precious Metals in 2010 to bring precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. We found out about Andrew Sorcini and Beverly Hills Precious Metals from General Michael Flynn, and we are sure glad we did. Andrew is a frequent guest on conservative podcasts. Beverly Hills Precious Metals is our gold buyer of choice. To learn more about Andrew and his team, go to bh-pm.com. The BH stands for Beverly Hills. The PM stands for Precious Metals, bh-pm.com. If you can't remember that, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. No matter what search engine you use, it's the first thing that comes up. Now make sure you ask about the General Mike Flynn silver coin they're selling like hotcakes. And let them know Doc Washburn sent you. We're honored to be able to tell you about Beverly Hills Precious Metals in an effort to help you in your attempts to protect your family's finances, wealth, and investments. bh-pm.com or Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Now, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations to stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people, were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally... We can shop Factory Direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. SwitchToAmerica.com is helping Americans walk away from the big-box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created. But the regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patreon influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big, woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We're done with the woke, globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made-in-America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Now, an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics hormones, or even vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Switch to America.com. All right, I, was, I told you I was going to tell you about what they're calling the most dangerous international treaty ever proposed. The great Molly Kingsley over the Brownstone Institute. 
Soundstone.org has the article. And just so you know, the author, Molly Kingsley, is a co-founder at Us For Them, the parent campaign group formed in May 2020 to advocate against school closures. They have since been joined by tens of thousands of parents, grandparents, and professionals all over the U.K. and beyond, advocating for children to be prioritized in the pandemic response and beyond. So we have a British conservative here writing at brownstone.org the most dangerous international treaty ever proposed. And she says, human history is a story of forgotten lessons. Despite the catastrophic collapse of European democracy in the 1930s, it appears that the tale of the 20th century, in which citizens, cowed by existential threats, acquiesced in the rejection of liberty and truth in favor of obedience and propaganda, while allowing despotic leaders to seize ever more absolutist powers, is perilously close to being forgotten. Nowhere is this more evident than in relation to the apparent nonchalance which has greeted two international legal agreements currently working their way through the World Health Organization, a new pandemic treaty and amendments to the 2005 international health regulations, both due to be put before the governing body of the World Health Organization, the World Health Assembly, in May of next year. Now, as concerned scholars and jurists have detailed, these agreements threaten to fundamentally reshape the relationship between the World Health Organization, national governments, and individuals. That means you and me. They would hardwire into international law a top-down, supranational approach to public health in which the World Health Organization, acting in some cases via the sole discretion of one individual, Tedros, its director general, would be empowered to impose sweeping, legally binding directions on member states and their citizens ranging from mandating financial contributions by individual states to requiring the manufacture and international sharing of vaccines and other health products, to requiring the surrender of intellectual property rights, overriding national safety approval processes for vaccines, gene-based therapies, medical devices and diagnostics, and imposing national, regional, and global quarantines, preventing citizens from traveling and mandating medical examinations and treatments, a global system for digital health certificates for verification of vaccine status or test results would be routine, and a biosurveillance network whose purpose would be to identify viruses and variants of concern and to monitor national compliance with World Health Organization policy directives in the event of them would be embedded and expanded. For any of these sweeping powers to be invoked, there would be no requirement for an actual health emergency in which people are suffering measurable harm. Instead, 
It would be sufficient for the Director General of the World Health Organization, acting on his or her discretion, to have identified the mere potential for such an event. It's hard to overstate the impact of these proposals on member states' sovereignty, individual human rights, foundational principles of medical ethics, and child welfare. As currently drafted, these proposals would deny U.K. sovereignty and governmental autonomy over health and social policies, and through the indirect impacts of forced lockdowns and quarantines, and because each member state would be required to commit a staggering minimum of 5% of national health budgets and an as yet unspecified percentage of GDP toward the, world, toward the World Health Organization's pandemic prevention and response also over critical aspects of economic policy. Well, obviously, not just the U.K., obviously the USA and the rest of us. The proposed new powers would cut across not only the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but also the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. They would signal a new watershed in our understanding of cornerstone human rights and express amendment to the IHR deletes language currently reading, quote, the implementation of these regulations shall be with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons, unquote, to replace it with a nebulous confirmation that the implementation of these regulations shall be based on the principles of equity, inclusivity, coherence. Oh, good grief. And, of course, IHR stands for International Health Regulations at the World Health Organization, just so you know. But there's so much more. Provisions requiring, in particular, the World Health Organization to develop fast-tracked regulatory guidelines for the rapid, also known as relaxed, approval of a broad range of health products, including vaccines, gene-based therapies, medical devices, and diagnostics, threatens, in the view of legal jurists, long fought-for standards of medical law aiming to ensure safety and efficacy of medical products and should be of particular concern for parents. Indeed, nothing in these documents would oblige the World Health Organization to differentiate its binding directions for the impact on children, thus allowing for indiscriminate measures, including mass testing, isolation, travel restrictions, and vaccination, potentially of investigational and experimental products, fast-tracked to accelerated approvals, being mandated for healthy pediatric populations on the basis of a real or potential health emergency declared unilaterally by the Director General of the World Health Organization. As if this weren't troubling enough, what makes it more so is that, as Thomas Fozzi writes, the World Health Organization has fallen largely under the control of private capital and other vested interests. In other words, the money behind Big Pharma. As he and others explain, the evolving 
funding structure of that organization, and in particular the influence of corporate organizations focusing on pandemic response solutions, predominantly vaccines, has steered the World Health Organization away from its original ethos of promoting a democratic, holistic approach to public health and toward corporatized, commodity-based approaches which generate profit for its private and corporate sponsors. Hat tip to David Bell on that one. Over 80% of the World Health Organization's budget is now specified funding by way of voluntary contributions typically earmarked for specific projects or diseases in a way that the funder specifies. The prologue to Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, says, History can familiarize and it should warn. If only we were minded to be taught, there would be lessons to be learned of how far down the path of tyranny pandemic authoritarianism has already taken us, and of how, if the World Health Organization's plans proceed, the COVID pandemic may yet signal just the beginning. Lesson one cautions anticipatory obedience is a political tragedy. Lesson one of that book on tyranny, 20 lessons from the 20th century. Anticipatory obedience is a political tragedy. And indeed, it now would seem that the voluntary obedience given so heedlessly by global citizens in 2020 to 2022 to wear masks, to be locked down, to accept novel vaccinations, all these measures and more now embedded in the proposals as potentially mandatory directives binding on both member states and therefore on individual citizens. Lesson two from the book, by Timothy Snyder on tyranny, 20 lessons from the 20th century, says, defend institutions for institutions do not protect themselves. A sobering reminder in light of the World Health Organization's self-designation in these proposals as a guiding and coordinating authority of international public health responses, a designation which would expressly elevate that organization above national ministries of health and elected sovereign parliaments. Lesson number three from the book. Beware the one-party state. Reminds us that parties that remade states and suppressed rivals were not omnipotent from the start. The World Health Organization does not masquerade as a political party, but nor will it need to after ordaining itself as the exclusive global controller, not just of the identification of pandemics and potential pandemics, but of the design and execution of pandemic responses, while also granting itself a vast health surveillance network and a global workforce, funded in part by the taxpayers of the nations over whom it shall tower commensurate with its new supreme status. Now, remembering professional ethics, lesson number five from the book, would have been sage advice in 2020, but much though we might lament the abandonment of medical ethics from our vantage point now in 2023, Snyder 
says in relation to the tyranny of the 20th century, if doctors had accepted the rule of no surgery without consent, the World Health Organization proposals would ensure that such deviations from foundational pillars of medical ethics, informed consent, disregard for human dignity, bodily autonomy, freedom from experimentation even, can become an accepted norm rather than an an abhorrent exception. Snyder warns in his book, Beware of the Sudden Disaster that Requires the Ends of Checks and Balances. Be alive to the fatal notions of emergency and exception. Positioned as a necessary next step for achieving global public health coordination and cooperation, the World Health Organization's proposals would erect a permanent global surveillance infrastructure and bureaucracy whose reason to exist will be to seek out and suppress health emergencies. The funding for this network will originate from the private and corporate interests that stand to gain financially from the vaccine-based responses they envision. So the opportunities for private exploitation of public health crises will be huge. Anybody say Pfizer? Anybody say Moderna? Anybody say AstraZeneca? Anybody say Johnson & Johnson? But I digress. And by broadening and bringing forward in time the circumstances in which those powers might be triggered, no longer is an actual public health emergency required, merely the potential for such an event, where you can expect the threat of the exceptional state of emergency to become a semi-permanent feature of modern life. Lesson number 10 from Snyder's book, Believe in Truth. For to abandon facts is to abandon freedom, apt indeed for our Orwellian era of doublethink. Its slogans granted the status of religion and its ideology posing as integrity. Dr. Tedros Adhanam Ghebreyesus, World Health Organization Director General, said in 2020, Be safe, be smart, be kind. Now, what would Orwell make, one wonders, of the U.K.'s counter-disinformation unit and the U.S.'s Ministry of Truth, or of proposals which not only permit but require the World Health Organization to build institutional capacity to prevent the spread of misinformation and disinformation, and so anoint it as the single source of of pandemic truth? What would... Hannah Arendt make of 2020 through 2022's intrusion of the state into the private lives of individuals and families and the ensuing prolonged periods of isolation and through adopting forced isolation and segregation as respectful public health tools, the elevation of such destruction of private life to a globally accepted norm. In lesson number four in his book, Snyder says, Take responsibility for the face of the world. Could there be any more potent symbol of society's visible manifestations of loyalty to its new normal than the world's masked faces of 2020 and 2021? Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. That is a quote no less true for being incorrectly attributed to Jefferson 
But having lived amongst the debris of failed COVID authoritarianism for three years, perhaps we're too close now to understand how far from liberal democracy we have already fallen. Even if one wholeheartedly agreed with the World Health Organization's focus on pandemic preparedness and the interventionist responses provoked to grant such sweeping powers to a supranational organization, let alone one individual within that organization, would be astonishing that, as the pandemic response so brutally illustrated, the profit-optimized version of the greater good pursued by the World Health Organization often clashes with child health and welfare, sets us up to commit a grotesque misdeed against our children and young people. Snyder's most important lesson from his book might yet be to stand out. The moment you set an example, the spell of the status quo is broken. The U.K. has been sufficiently consumed with national sovereignty to pull out of the European Union, a poster child for democracy compared to the unelected World Health Organization. It would surely be unthinkable now to wave through proposals which would see the U.K. cede its sovereignty over key health, over key national health, social, and economic policies to the World Health Organization. Well, I hope she's right, but it sure looks like the USA is headed in exactly the wrong direction. That is the great Molly Kingsley over brownstone.org. The article is entitled, The Most Dangerous International Treaty Ever Proposed. And I certainly recommend it to you. Now, are you aware that Fauci, is still, to this day, talking about what a great job he did on the lockdowns and how wonderful and important and necessary the lockdowns were. Will this guy ever be held accountable for anything? When, when we in the, in the White House, when Debbie Burks and I proposed the 15-day shutdown followed by a 30-day shutdown, you may not remember, but that was when the meat-packing freezer trucks were parked in front of Elmhurst Hospital because they had to put the bodies in there because the morgues were overflowing. The same thing was seen in Boston in front of Mass General and the Brigham. So when you have a tsunami of cases where you have to shut it off immediately, you can't say, let's wait X number of months until we get a vaccine, or let's wait X number of months until we do this. When you're running out of hospital beds and you're running out of ventilators, you got to do something draconian, because otherwise there would have been a lot more lives lost. However, you've got to balance that and continually testing whether it's still worth locking down. The initial lockdown reason was a life-saving reason. How long you close a school, how long you do, you know, you diminish activities on the outside has to be a dynamic process, which you've got to evaluate in real time. Now is the risk-benefit still in favor of restriction, or is the risk-benefit leaning much more towards loosening up? 
And that's what's going to be interesting because we're going to go back and examine that. Is, were things done too long or not? But the initial decision to lock things down unequivocally saved a lot of lives. No doubt about that. Not even close. Well, he may never be held accountable in a court of law on this earth. But the guy's in his 80s and nobody lives forever. He'll be held accountable. And it will be much more um, excruciating for him when he has to stand before God and give an account for what he did in his life than anything an earthly court could do to him. And somebody somebody put out there, um, oh, it wasn't just somebody, uh, Congressman Thomas Massey, who is very conservative congressman from Kentucky, he was just about the only person in Congress. There might have been one or two others. But warning us that shutting everything down and pouring trillions of dollars of government money into the economy to pay us for you know, not being able to go to work was going to cause massive inflation. Uh, and he held out and said, no, we're going to have to have a uh, an actual vote on this. Or everybody's, you know, we can't just do a voice vote. And that upset President Trump. Um, I think President Trump had already uh, sponsored a, a, a primary opponent of Congressman Massey. Um, and that, that didn't work out too well for the primary opponent. But anyway, um, President Trump did such a great job. I mean, he was, I think, the best president in my lifetime, and I've been around for a long time, until he let Fauci and Burks take over. And that was very unfortunate because it's pretty obvious. Have you seen the video of Fauci behind Trump chuckling? to himself like, I put one over on this guy. Have you seen that? Fauci and Burks, I believe, intentionally tried to destroy everything President Trump did. Who, again, like I say, I think was the best president in my lifetime. And unfortunately, they undid so much that he did. You, you, don't, you don't have all the uh, corrupt mail-in votes and everything in those swing states without what Fauci and Burks did. Anyway, Thomas Massey put together this compilation, and it's rough. It's rough, but we got to deal with the truth. He's a good man. I like uh, Dr. Fauci a lot. The president has listened to what I have said and what the other people on the task force have said. We have, whether it's Dr. Fauci, we have the best people on earth when he suggests why don't we do this and i say no that's really not a good idea from a scientific standpoint he has never overruled me we've done pretty much what he and others dr burks and others who are terrific recommended when i've made recommendations he's taken them he's very important to me and i would i will be listening to him the first and only time that dr burks and i went in and formally made a recommendation to the president 
to actually have a, quote, shutdown. The president listened to the recommendation and went to the mitigation. I listened to them about everything. I think they're actually surprised. The next second time that I went with Dr. Burks into the president and said, 15 days are not enough. We need to go 30 days. The president went with the health recommendations. I have a lot of respect for Dr. Fauci and for Dr. Burks, and I'll be listening to them. He's never counted or overridden me. I get along with him very well, and I agree with a lot of what he said. Never in the multiple times that I've done that, where I said, for scientific reasons, we really should do this, that he hasn't said, let's do it. Well, Dr. Fauci said we've done a fantastic job. I can't imagine that anybody could be doing more. What have you seen over the last 48 hours that uh, had you reassess that strategy and say, you know what, I think we need to take a month off? Well, it's not so much what I've seen. I listen to experts. We have Dr. Fauci. Are we doing everything possible that you would do up to this point? You know, I believe so. I told Tony Fauci, I said, why don't you move to New York, run against AOC, you will win easily. The coordinated response has been, uh, there are a number of adjectives to be described, impressive, I think, is one of them. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, they should be respected for the job they've done. Never forget what they did to him and us. Never forget what they did to him and us. I'm going to tell you something that you may not know. Most people, even some very, very intelligent conservative colonists and and op-ed writers and talk show hosts, they're a lot smarter than me, think that Tony Fauci was in charge of our COVID response, but he wasn't. Dr. Deborah Burks was. Fauci was just there to do her bidding. But he just liked the camera a lot more. And when President Trump finally brought in Scott Atlas, it took him quite a while to figure out how Burks got that job because her background was not in immunology or virology or anything like that. How did she get that job? Because it wasn't President Trump that appointed her. Have I got your curiosity up? I dealt with this on two episodes of the Doc Washburn Show, episode 194 and episode 196. And if you really want to know how they grease the skids, with this COVID foolishness to get rid of Trump. You need to go back and listen to episode 194 and 196 about how Dr. Deborah Burks got that job. It may shock you. It certainly shocked me. All right. So we had a mass shooting, a murder of three little kids and three adults at the Christian school, the Covenant Christian School 
in Nashville, Tennessee, less than two weeks ago. And A.G. Hamilton, over to Substack, he uh, did a little article about it recently called The Real Victims. He said, Norm MacDonald had an insightful joke about how the press reacts to certain tragedies. He said, what terrifies me is if ISIS was to detonate a nuclear device and kill 50 million Americans, imagine the backlash against peaceful Muslims. As if, and a lot of people didn't get the joke, but I bet you did. As if to prove that they cannot be parodied, many mainstream media outlets had that exact response to the mass shooting in Tennessee last week. After a person who identified as transgender killed three children and three adults at a Christian elementary school, the press mostly glossed over the actual victims and even the ideology of the perpetrator. Instead, they decided the real victims were members of the trans community based on a hypothetical retaliation that didn't actually occur. So here are a few headlines. NBC News. Fear pervades Tennessee's trans community amid focus on Nashville shooters' gender identity. Washington Post. The right exploits Nashville shooting to escalate anti-trans rhetoric. Reuters. After school shooting, some trans Tennesseans face backlash. The UK Guardian. Desperate and bigoted. U.S. right uses latest shooting to malign trans people. A.G. Hamilton says, the trans community isn't responsible for the actions of one person, but they also aren't the main victims and shouldn't steal focus from families who have been devastated by this senseless tragedy. It's also reckless for the press to baselessly signal to a community where depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues run exceedingly high, that they've been targeted. Um, yeah. Now, you know, Kamala Harris went down to Nashville after the shooting. Did she meet with the families? Of the murder victims? No, she didn't. She met with trans people. Do you know that? Oh, yeah. She met with trans people. Now, Karine Jean-Pierre, she, uh, she had some things to say about so-called violence against trans people. I mean, she couldn't care less about the murder victims. But I guess I guess maybe she relates to so-called trans people. Here is Karine Jean-Pierre. It should raise concerns. As we know um, from the Dobbs decision, uh, one of the things that uh, we saw... 
Wait, wait, wait. Uh, from uh, from Judge Thompson is that they're looking to go further, uh, uh, whether it's uh, privacy, contraception, or uh, marriage equality. Okay, very funny. I get it. She doesn't know Clarence Thomas's last name. She called him Judge Thompson. Very funny. Okay, but I mean, can we can can we play what she said about the whole transgender thing? Uh, you know, I, I'd appreciate it if we could do that. A border wall is ineffective use. Okay, all right, I get it. She doesn't know how to pronounce the word ineffective. I. I, I, I understand, but if we could just get to Karine Jean Pierre and the uh and, and and the trans thing. Could could we could we possibly ineffective use? Ineffective instead of ineffective. I yeah, I understand. I understand. All right. But if we could just move along to Karine Jean Pierre. Uh, talking about her love for 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 all things trans. Today, President Biden met with three U.S. winners of the 2022 Nobel Prize. Oh! Dr. Caroline Bertozzi, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Dr. John Clauser, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics. And Dr. Douglas Diamond, who won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. Oh, I, I, I get it. She's not very bright. She mispronounced Nobel Prize four times in 22 seconds. That's, that's just great. But if we can move along now to Corinne Jean-Pierre, good grief, it's about to rub off of me. I almost mispronounced her name. Talking about the trans. Hope, uh, Emeritus uh, Benedict Sixteenth. Okay, so she can't say emer- uh, Emeritus either. <laughs> Pope uh, Emeritus uh, Benedict XVI. <laughs> and you know what? They don't care. They don't care because if they cared, somebody would go over the hard words for her that she doesn't know to make sure she pronounced them correctly. But they're just fine with that. They don't care. Okay, the vice president will visit uh, the DMZ. Nearly 70 years since the Korean Armtis. Armtis. See, I thought it was armistice. But if we could maybe just get back to her comment about the trans. Could could could, could we do that? Because we could sit here all night and have her mispronounce things. So you've heard us say this, that what, what we see Russia's doing, and we've been very clear about this, is that they're using energy, they're weaponizing energy, and it's choosing to, to one of the things that uh, has been out there to shut down the pipeline of Nordstrom 1. It's Nordstrom. Nordstrom is a, uh, is a department store, I believe. Are we, are we ever going to get to or think about the trans? Because I, I kind of like to get to that, but why is why is the American military shooting something out of the sky over Canada? Because it's part of a NORAD. There is a, the NORAD is part of like a part of a it's a it's a what you call a coalition, a coalition, so a pact okay. exactly. And so that's why we were able to do that again. We didn't do it on our own. We did right. it in in uh, in uh, clearly in in, in 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 step with uh, right. Canada. Okay, so she doesn't even know how to pronounce Canada. She thinks our neighbor to the north is pronounced Canada. 
Oh my goodness, where do you, where do they find these people? No, no, no. I'm not going to ask that. I'm afraid I'll get an answer if I do. Okay, so finally. Karine Jean-Pierre talking about trans violence. And one of the things that we saw during the midterm elections is that people don't want their freedoms to be taken. They want us to fight for their freedoms. And so it is shameful, it is disturbing, and uh, our hearts go out to uh, the, the trans community as they are under attack right now. They want more violence from confused people. Do you hear that? She's saying that trans people are under attack. A self-identifying transgender person just murdered six people at a Christian elementary school. And she says they want people to fight for them and they're under attack. She has no words of uh, comfort for the families of the murder victims. Oh, and so what's the answer? What's the answer? Uh, Taking away guns, right? Yeah. Here she is again. In the last presidential campaign, one of the Democratic contenders said that what he would do is come for AR-15s. Does the president support not just banning the sale and manufacture of semi-automatic weapons, but further than that, confiscation? Let me just be very clear. What we're talking about, AR-15s, these assault weapons ban, they are weapons of war, and they should not be on the streets across the country, in our communities. They should not be in schools. They should not be in grocery stores. They should not be in in churches. That's what the president believes. So she does not rule out the idea of confiscating your guns from you. Well, Corrine, if I might call you Corrine, Molan Lave, come and get them. Ha, ha, ha. Guns? Guns? You know what? I was stupid enough to take a uh, kayak ride or a canoe ride. Yeah, canoe ride. That's it. Yeah, that's a ticket. A canoe ride over the Niagara Falls. My wife told me not to. Had all my guns in the canoe going over the Niagara Falls, and, well, yeah, they're pretty waterlogged by now. Just, uh, Just don't have them anymore. Now, have you ever tried arguing? Arguing with a liberal. And did it go something like this? Sorry, Kevin Bacon wasn't in Footloose. What? Of course he was. No, he wasn't. You lose. Of course he was. He was the star. Nope, you're wrong. Look it up. I don't have to look it up. It's common knowledge. He was on the cover of People Magazine. No, no, Everyone knows Kevin Bacon was a star in Footloose. No, It was a huge movie. It was the lead. No, 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 no. So that's kind of what happened. That's a, you know, from a cartoon. But that's kind of what happened in real life. Um, liberal Democrat congressman, guy named Jamal Bowman, was freaking out in a public area in the U.S. Capitol because he wants to, he wants to take your guns away, right? And um, so members of Congress were just going right by him as he was calling them names. And one of them stopped. One of them stopped to see what was going on. Congressman Thomas Massey. 
And he's trying to get in a word edgewise about the fact that there's never been a school shooting at a school which allowed teachers to conceal carry. And Congressman Jamal Bowman is a gun grabber. He doesn't want that word getting out. So he kept on talking over him, and Massey was finally able to get away from him and get the truth out there. But have you heard about this anywhere? Here's two minutes. It's worth waiting for Massey to finally be able to get in a word edgewise after Bowman keeps on yelling over him. Children at all, cowards, crushing them, forced them to respond to the question, why the hell won't you do anything to save America's children? And let them explain that all the way up until Election Day of 2024. Let them explain it all the way up to Election Day of 2024. They're freaking cowards. They're gutless. They're not here. I'm talking about gun violence. You know, there's never been... that knucklehead saying he was in the cafeteria protecting schools, uh, protecting students every day. I wonder how he would protect a student from an active shooter if he's not carrying a gun. I'll bet he carries one. Don't you? Yeah. Oh. Well, and one of the points that Massey made was that they have guys with guns protecting them in Congress But the liberals don't want the kids to be protected by guys with guns. So you know what happens when they get rid of people's right to carry guns. The government starts killing people. And they've already killed so many people in this country, by not allowing them to have hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin when they got COVID. 
by giving them remdesivir, putting them on ventilators. Oh, they killed a lot of people. No respect for human rights whatsoever. So there's a guy, uh, John Sauer, and he was testifying the other day, and he is a uh, special assistant attorney general in Louisiana. Testifying before the uh, U.S. House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. And Thomas Massey, the guy you just heard from, has some questions for Mr. Sauer, and this is uh, pretty interesting. I want to ask you, Mr. Sauer, how did the CDC, the Surgeon General, and, and NIAID communicate with uh, social media platforms to influence them? They did it in different ways, but you see a lot of email traffic that was not public at the time where there's censorship activities that were out of public view. And um, like at CDC, where, what was the particular channel there? Did, uh, I heard that they had uh, some portal partnership that they could access directly to Twitter. Who, who were the people involved? That's correct. You see both Twitter and Facebook offering federal officials privilege access to be sort of privileged flaggers of misinformation using something that Twitter calls the partner support portal and something that the Facebook emails describe as Facebook's misinfo reporting channel and they assure them hey if you go through this process you'll get immediate very prompt responses will prioritize escalation of your concerns so the government literally signed up as a partner with the social media companies i think that's a very fair comment on our evidence so one other avenue that the uh, i want you to tell us about that the government may have had influence is this virality project can you tell us what that is and what they do and if they receive taxpayer money the virality project is a kind of consortium of private entities working hand in glove with the federal government. It's really just an extension under a different name of the Election Integrity Partnership. You're talking about entities like Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, uh, Graphica and the Atlantic Council's DFR lab collaborating closely with state, federal, and local government officials and collaborating closely with the social media platforms all at once to engage in a, a mass surveillance and mass censorship program for social media the, the the breadth of which is staggering imagine my surprise when i found out that the virality project was targeting my communications in social media with my constituents and i want to apologize because uh, sour's voice didn't sound that bad when i recorded him into the system but i, I think you get the point i think you get the point and, you know, it takes me back to what we were talking about, the Restrict Act earlier, right? Bad news. Now, speaking of which, I've got a theory. I'll bet you when Jim Jordan asked Sauer about Dr. Fauci, his voice didn't sound nearly as bad. Let's find out. He deposed Dr. Fauci last fall. Uh, in that deposition, you asked him the question. You said, is it important for people to have access to both sides of the debate so they can assess what's good information and what's bad information? Remember that question you asked, Dr. Fauci? Okay, it just dawned on me. I forgot. <laughs> it took several questions for Jim Jordan to, to finally tell Sauer, hey, it'd help if you could turn your microphone on. So anyway, but you get the idea. 
And here's here was his response. He said, Dr. Fauci said, well, you know, it depends. If information is clearly inadequate and statistically not sound, there can be a danger in people who don't have the ability or the experience to understand. Mr. Sauer, do you forfeit your First Amendment rights if you can't tell good information from bad information? That's not how our First Amendment works, is it? You need to turn on your mic if you can, Mr. Sauer. Is the First Amendment only for those people who have the ability or experience to understand? No, it is for all Americans. All Americans. All 330 million of us. Is that right? That's correct. Not just for the special people. Not just for the super smart people like Dr. Fauci, who worked 40 years in our government, highest paid guy. Not just for them. It's for all of us, right? Absolutely right. Even if maybe you don't know the difference sometimes between what's good or bad information, you still have your First Amendment liberties under our Constitution. Both to hear and to speak. Absolutely. Exactly right. By the way, when you deposed Dr. Fauci, did, how many times did he happen to say he didn't know or couldn't remember? He said, I do not recall or variations thereof 174 times and adding in a variations of I don't remember at least 212 times. Wow. Smartest man on the planet couldn't remember 212 times? He couldn't remember things, including things that he had told the national media, quote, I remember it very well, that he would say 16 times. I don't recall details of that meeting. Wow. But wait, there's more. Now, now you, uh, is that, you went to, you were near the top of your class at Harvard Law School, Rhodes Scholar, is that right, Mr. Sauer? Uh, I've submitted a biographical statement. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I looked at your, your biography, it's pretty impressive. Is that pretty high? You've done a lot of depositions, you've done a lot of legal work, you've deposed a lot of people, 212 times pretty high? I've taken dozens of depositions, I've never seen anything like it, including in this case where other federal government witnesses frequently profess inability to recall. So. So Fauci's a bald-faced liar. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. I hope you're sitting down. I hope, you know, anyway. The guy who told us all these things, who was, you know, the smartest man on the planet, he set a record. Highest you've ever seen and not re- couldn't recall, didn't remember. I've never seen anything like it. Okay, page four of your testimony, you talk about the censorship enterprise. You give a bunch of facts and numbers here. You said Twitter disclosed that 84 government officials communicated with them. Or as Mr. Seligman said, gave them suggestions. 84 federal officials gave Twitter suggestions on tweets and things to take down. 45 officials in the federal government told the same thing to Facebook. Is that right? They, they discussed disinformation and censorship with those officials. Yeah, a handful of federal agencies handed over 20,000 pages of documents in the communications they'd had with these big tech companies. Again, just suggestions, though, according to Mr. Seligman. Uh, 20 White House officials were involved in these suggestions to... Uh, to um, uh, these social media platforms. That's conservative. It's probably higher. Yeah. FBI agent Elvis Chan testified the FBI loan sends encrypted list to social media accounts, sometimes containing hundreds of accounts and URLs in each list to platforms for censorship one to five times per month. 500 times a month. 500 different email addresses or uh, websites, everything else they're sending to these social media platforms. The FBI... And Mr. Seligman says, don't worry, that's not a problem with the First Amendment. That's a suggestion. Yes, over the course of years, that's been occurring. The Election Integrity Partnership, a censorship consortium of academics, think tanks, federal, state, government, official, social media platforms, boasts that it surveilled 859 million tweets, 21,897,364 tweets on tickets as misinformation. Is that right? That's correct. You, all, you learned this in your discovery in your, in your uh, lawsuit so far. Correct, Your Honor. 
And the Virality Project, a mass surveillance and censorship operation conducted by the EIP, has done over 200, 6.7 million engagements on social media, 200 million. Now, let me just ask you this. Were, were most of those targets uh, towards conservatives? Virtually everything we've seen in evidence so far, or at least the vast majority of what we've seen in so far, is conservative right-leaning speech. But you would be just as outraged. I read your testimony. You'd be just as outraged if it was the other way around, right? Absolutely. Because same here, same here. Because the First Amendment again is not just for some people, not just for one political persuasion, not just for the so-called smart people like Dr. Fauci. It's for three hundred and thirty-some million Americans. That's how our Constitution works. Is that right, Mr. Sauer? Every single American. I thank the gentleman. And they want to shut that down. They want to shut you up so badly. Never forget that. Pray for your country. We're in dark times, and it's going to get darker. Okay, I got some more to share with you here before we run out of time. Because... um, Podbean, which is the app we use for the uh, live stream, usually cuts me off around two hours or so into it. And then I put the whole thing when I upload, uh, you know, the whole episode. And we've just scratched the surface. A Powerline blog from April 6th, the great Scott Johnson, the Biden Connection. He said, this morning's New York Post column by Miranda Devine is ostensibly devoted to an update on Hunter Biden. When she gets around to Trump's indictment on New York state charges, she includes a nugget that was news to me. She says, We're watching in real time as they interfere with another election by trying to take out the GOP frontrunner with flimsy allegations that he hid hush money to a porn star. Biden foreshadowed this move the day after the midterms last November, when asked about Trump running for president again, he said we make sure he never takes power again. Here's the quote. We just, have, we just have to demonstrate that he will not take power if he does run, making sure he, under legitimate efforts of our Constitution, does not become the next president again. The next month, one of the top-ranking left-wing Ideologues and Biden's Department of Justice, Matthew Colangelo, was sent to Alvin Bragg's office to run the Trump case. As Mike Davis, former chief counsel for nominations to the Senate Judiciary Committee, put it, Colangelo, a former NAACP lawyer, is the key link between Alvin Bragg, New York prosecutor, and the DOJ in their efforts to politicize and weaponize our federal and state justice systems to get Trump. The irony of Alvin Bragg's case is that Democrats are interfering with the 2024 election with allegations that Trump interfered with the 2016 election. Scott Johnson, Powerline Blog, says, I thought readers following the story so far would want to know the the bit about Colangelo. The Biden connection is dirtier and more lethal than the French connection of old. All right, let's look at John Hinderaker. Also April 6th. April 6th, Powerline blog. He says, The trans community has been a fertile source of actual and would-be mass murderers. That should not be surprising, I suppose, since we're talking about mental illness. Another one was stopped in Colorado today. Robert Spencer, 
asks a good question when he says, William Whitworth, a 19-year-old male who claims to be female and goes by the name Lily, has been arrested in Colorado Springs, Colorado, after threatening various local schools. Whitworth has been charged with two counts of criminal attempt to commit murder in the first degree, as well as criminal mischief, menacing, and more. His case, following so soon after Audrey Hale, a woman claiming to be a male, murdered six people at a Christian school in Nashville, once again raises the question, wouldn't we be better off treating this transgender business as mental illness rather than coddling and celebrating people who suffer from these delusions? John Hinderaker says, yes, yes, we would be better off, but liberals don't actually want us to be better off. I want to highlight this. Again, from Robert Spencer's article over at pjmedia.com, KRDO, Colorado Springs, adds that, quote, they attended both in-person and the district's homeschool academy, unquote. Now, Whitworth did not have an accomplice. KRDO is referring to him as they because Whitworth himself apparently prefers to be referred to in the plural. It is a peculiar manifestation of the madness of our age that even as a mentally ill individual plots to act upon his mental illness by murdering people, those who report on this fact still treat his mental illness as if it were perfectly normal and even torture the English language in order to accommodate said mental illness. Apparently, no one at KRDO had the vision or wisdom or simple guts to say, hey, this trans kid was just planning to kill people. Maybe we shouldn't coddle him and pretend that he's in his right mind by referring to him according to the pronouns of his delusion and fantasy. No one would have dared do that. Hinderaker, Powerline Blog says, sad but true. No one would have dared in Colorado or elsewhere. To say that courage and common sense are in short supply is an understatement. Finally, this from Robert Spencer's PJ Media article about the latest mass shooting to be foiled. Authorities also found floor plans of the school and directions for how to build a detonation device. They also found a copy of the Communist Manifesto. Well, well, well. A list of weapons and 3D printer instructions, hit lists, and a list of various public figures, including conservative YouTuber Lauren Southern, whom Whitworth described as pathetic, and Donald Trump, whom Whitworth dismissed as con man. Whitworth said bad cops were useless garbage. William Lilly Whitworth, in some, is yet another leftist trans would-be mass murderer in a society whose leaders steadfastly ignore the existence of such people and blame their victims. John Hinderaker, Powerline Blog, wraps up his excerpting Robert Spencer's PJ Media article over Powerline Blog saying, I think that's fair. I would add that as time goes by, it is increasingly difficult to differentiate between liberalism and mental illness. Well, 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 that takes us back to the great Dr. Michael Savage. Remember, he had a book some years back 
Liberalism is a mental disease. Wasn't that the name of it? I believe it was. Now, let me share with you. The great Victor Davis Hanson, I hope you're familiar with him. I hope you've seen him on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. I hope you've seen him elsewhere. He has a wonderful series about World War II with Hillsdale College on uh, YouTube, and he has a wonderful book called The Second World Wars with an S. So recently, over to American Greatness, amgreatness.com, April 5th, Wednesday, April 5th, Victor Davis Hanson had a short article, which is ominous. It's called Our French Revolution. Subtitle, America now has three potential futures and two are bad. And he writes as if you might be familiar with the French Revolution. And if you aren't, you need to get familiar with it. I am blessed to have taken a class in the French Revolution when I was a history major at UNC Charlotte many, many years ago. But here's what he says. We are in a Jacobin revolution of the sort that in 1793 and 94 nearly destroyed France, and things are getting scary. The Democrat Party vanished sometime in 2020. It was absorbed by hard-left ideologues. They were bent on radically altering or hijacking existing institutions to force radical equality-of-result agendas that otherwise do not earn majority support. The American people want affordable power and fuel and energy autonomy. They do not want a Green New Deal that results in dependence on the Middle East. They want fiscal sobriety, not a permanent stagflationary economy marked by bank failures, soaring interest rates, crony capitalism, and subsidies for those who choose not to work. They know no country can exist without a border, much less while offering blank checks to foreign cartels that kill 100,000 Americans yearly. They demand realist deterrence abroad, not the current woke military, whose erosion is spelling the end, American credibility, and global stability. Racialists are eerily embracing discredited neo-Confederate notions of racial chauvinism, discrimination, segregation, and the old one-drop rule of racial obsession. They're turning America toward a balkanized war of all against all. To implement such an unpopular program, the new left must radically alter our institutions. So the so-called Democrats periodically threaten to pack the courts, end the filibuster, destroy the electoral college, and override the state's prerogatives to establish balloting laws. They deny the committee assignments of the House Minority Leader. They engage in stunts like tearing up the State of the Union address on national television. With impunity, they mob the homes of Supreme Court justices to leverage their decisions. This revolution is run by elites and is a top-down operation. University deans all but prompt students to disrupt invited campus speakers. 
District attorneys release violent arrested criminals without bail. Woke generals call their Chinese counterparts to warn them against their own commander-in-chief. The Pentagon lectures the country on its supposed innate racism, even as the United States continues to lose wars abroad, abandons billions of dollars of equipment to terrorists, and allows communist China to surveil domestic American military bases with complete impunity. Words change their meanings. Racist now means don't dare object. White became the pejorative stereotype used by racists. Diversity means tired orthodoxy. Equity is a synonym for bias. Inclusion ensures exclusion. Institutions are no longer recognizable. The FBI as we knew it no longer exists. Three former FBI directors either lied under oath to federal investigators or pleaded amnesia in congressional testimonies. Our highest former national intelligence officers lied under oath to the Senate. The IRS is weaponized against political opponents of the Democrats. The Department of Justice is more likely to send the FBI after grammar school parents than mobs threatening the homes of Supreme Court justices. Still, to thoroughly erase America, our Jacobins must radically alter our customs and traditions. So under the cover of the COVID quarantines, Election Day was made irrelevant. In the new America, 70% did not vote on the designated day, but fueled by third-party vote harvesting and relaxation of audits of non-Election Day ballots, extended the vote over a period of several weeks. Like the Jacobins, names and dates had to be radically transformed. 1619 not 1776, is now America's birth date, and we are told it was an ignominious one. Statues are toppled. Careers Trotskyized. Biological males suddenly have hijacked women's sports, destroying five decades of women's hard-won efforts to achieve equal treatment and respect in athletics. What triggered the collective madness and this Jacobin takeover? The left's perfect storm of the 120 days of riot, death, arson, and looting of 2020? The COVID pandemic? The disastrous two-year lockdown? The 2016 election of the outsider, Donald Trump? All those catalysts and more. As the country collapses under leftist nihilism, the revolution's last gasp is to destroy Donald Trump by empowering him. That is, the leftist legal vendetta is designed to win him just enough empathy to be nominated the Republican Party's presidential candidate, but then to keep on indicting, gagging, and hemorrhaging him legally until Election Day 2024. Trump was the first president to be impeached twice, to be tried by the Senate as a private citizen, and to have his private home raided by the FBI. Now, he is the first president to have been indicted effectively ending America's moral authority abroad. America now has three potential futures, and two are bad. First, first, the Jacobins have two more years to finish what they started as the founder's dream descends into our worst nightmare. Second, 
The revolution has so warped our legal system, our voting on Election Day, and the FBI, the CIA, the Justice Department, and the IRS, that even a despised, unpopular left will supposedly win elections. The third is that New York prosecutor Alvin Bragg has jumped the shark. His pathetic prosecution is so patently incoherent, illiberal, and in spirit anti-American that two-thirds of the country will soon conclude the center is not holding in our country. The Jacobins' reign of terror is unsustainable, and so in 2024 the left will not be defeated, but so defeated so that it is utterly discredited. The choice is ours. Well, from your lips to God's ears, Victor Davis Hanson, but I just... uh, I don't know if they stole 2020 and we haven't fixed or allowed them to to, uh, to steal it. I just, I don't know if that's going to be possible. Julie Kelly at American Greatness has a warning for us. This came down April 7th, Friday, April 7th. It's called The Gathering Storm. Subtitle, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's Flop was merely the unsatisfying appetizer for the feast on Donald Trump that is about to come. She says, The first grand jury indictment against Donald Trump, like so many highly anticipated gotcha moments involving the former president, landed with a thud this week. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's 34-count bill of goods failed to impress legal and political observers across the spectrum. Even Ruth Marcus associate editor for the Washington Post, admitted the legal basis for the charges is unnervingly flimsy at worst. News coverage of Alvin Bragg's faceplant is quickly disappearing from the front pages as all desperate eyes now turn to Jack Smith. The mysterious figure, appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland last year ostensibly to take over the Justice Department's investigation into Trump's culpability for January 6th, an alleged mishandling of classified documents. As I already explained, Jack Smith is special counsel in name only. The team of investigators and prosecutors who initiated the first set of inquiries simply changed letterhead. Given the targets of Smith's recent subpoenas, we can surmise there's nothing independent or impartial about his behind-the-scenes work. In rapid succession, Smith has successfully sought testimony from Trump's inner circle, including former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and White House Attorney Evan Corcoran. For the first time in history, a vice president will testify before a grand jury considering evidence of crimes committed by his former boss, Mike Pence. After winning partial immunity, reportedly will answer questions about his exchanges with Trump in the weeks leading up to the protests at the Capitol. Oddly... Pence will not be compelled to discuss what he did on January 6th, a dubious protection considering his key presence throughout the day and into the next morning. Of course, the public can't read any of the government's arguments since everything remains under seal. Ditto for court orders granting Jack Smith's every wish. As the most norm-crushing investigation in history unfolds in the nation's capital, judges without explanation keep the files out of the view of the American people. Out of view, that is, except for what D.C. apparatchiks want to spin, selective leaks 
Keep Jack Smith's inquiry in the headlines. CNN disclosed this week that Smith's team is focused on post-election discussions in the Trump White House related to the possible seizure of voting machines. Quote, Details about the secret grand jury testimony and closed-door interviews, neither of which have been previously reported, illustrate how Special Counsel Smith and his prosecutors are looking at the various ways Trump tried to overturn his electoral loss, despite some of his top officials advising him against the ideas, unquote. The coordinated leak strategy is intended to give the appearance that the prison walls, once again, are closing in on Trump. This time, however, it's true. Jack Smith's multi-pronged investigation, another recent leak indicated Smith's team is considering obstruction charges tied to the classified documents investigation, by far represents the most dangerous legal threat Trump has ever faced. Working with a limitless budget, no media scrutiny, zero congressional oversight, compliant federal judges, and abundant case law providing a clear pathway to multiple felony charges related to January 6th, Jack Smith is in the driver's seat and he knows it. A D.C. grand jury likely will indict Trump on multiple counts for his key role in the events of January 6th. Grand juries are composed of the same voters who sit on regular juries, and that is terrible news for Trump. Washington, D.C. is the most heavily Democrat city in the country, even more so than New York City and San Francisco, and grand juries since January 6th have issued hundreds of federal indictments representing thousands of criminal counts. The Justice Department has a near-perfect conviction rate for January 6th defendants. Judges refuse to move trials out of D.C. despite overwhelming proof. Trump supporters cannot receive a fair trial in the nation's capital. Trump almost certainly will be charged with destruction of an official proceeding, the felony slapped against at least 250 January 6th defendants, punishable by up to 20 years in prison, and conspiracy. He could face other offenses such as tampering with witnesses and or evidence if Jack Smith shows proof that Trump tried to interfere with any aspect of the investigation, including the work of the January 6th Select Committee. But Smith might decide to pursue seditious conspiracy charges, which poses the greatest legal peril for Trump. Several men have been convicted or pleaded guilty to this rare charge, a crime comparable to treason. Five members of the Proud Boys are now on trial for the seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors have cited Trump's offhanded and prompted remark for Proud Boys to stand back and stand by during the September 2020 presidential debate as a call to action of sorts that motivated the group's unarmed, quote, attack, unquote, on the Capitol. Should any or all of the Proud Boys defendants be found guilty, the case is expected to finally go to the jury next week after four months of arguments, the convictions will add fuel to Jack Smith's pursuit of a similar charge against Trump. When he is indicted, Trump will confront the same legal and judicial circle of hell that has destroyed the lives of hundreds of Americans and counting. Judges he appointed will automatically be disqualified. Not that it makes a difference since his judges have acted just as badly 
and in the case of Judge Timothy Kelly, worse than jurists appointed by Democrat presidents. His case will probably be assigned to an Obama-appointed judge such as Amit Mehta or James Bosberg, the new chief judge. From there, Trump can expect a change of venue motion to be denied. The judge handling his case will cite the handful of acquittals as evidence Trump can get a fair trial in Washington. Any appeal will be denied by the D.C. Circuit Court. And to fulfill the bloodlust on the left to finally see Donald Trump behind bars, there's a chance that Jack Smith will request and a judge will grant pretrial detention for the former president. Dozens of January 6th defendants charged with nonviolent obstruction or conspiracy counts have been denied release by D.C. judges. Most have no criminal record and committed no violent act that day. But none of the facts matter. Trump will be treated no differently in the banana republic-like atmosphere in the D.C. federal courthouse. After all, this is the same judicial circuit that has stripped Trump of executive privilege, protections, and insisted, as Judge Tanya Chutkin wrote in her 2021 order, denying Trump's first privilege claims, quote, presidents are not kings and Trump is not president, unquote. And that is how Trump will be treated, not as a former president, but as a traitor, the man responsible for inciting the so-called insurrection. This still traumatizes so many judges and jurors to this day, the leader who attempted to, quote, overthrow democracy, unquote, on January 6th. Decent Americans still want to believe this can't and won't happen. But it is a near certainty for which the country, flat-footed Republican leaders in particular, must prepare. Alvin Bragg's flop was merely the unsatisfying appetizer for the feast on Donald Trump that is about to commence. That is the great Julie Kelly with some really bad news that we don't want to hear from a recent article, The Gathering Storm from the American Greatness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is horrific. All right, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Today's Tweet of the Day is brought to you by a guy who goes by the name Rising Serpent. I don't know what his real name is. But he says, I wish we could go back to the good old days. When the border was closed, when gas was $2 a gallon, when grocery store shelves were full, when we weren't fighting proxy wars, when banks weren't collapsing, and when women didn't have male parts. Okay, that's your Tweet of the Day, brought to you by Red River Auto. Now, you've been listening to episode 368 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, which is entitled, The Trump Indictment Was Was Timed. The Trump Indictment Was Timed to Distract You from a Lot of Other Things Going On at the Same Time. 
The next episode will be part two of that because I didn't even scratch the surface. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, and care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. Well, that's the way it is. Sunday, April 9th, 2023.